Welcome to the Suicide Prevention and Awareness Podcast, part of CBP's Shine a Light Suicide Prevention Program. Today, we are talking with Dave, a supervisor with OSH, and Dr. Kent Corso, a clinical psychologist specializing in suicide prevention. In this episode, Dave talks with Dr. Corso on the relationship between safety and suicide. Hi, and welcome to our monthly podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today and to our guests for being with us. Just a few caveats before we get going. I am a clinical psychologist, so I am a doctor, but I'm not the doctor for our guest. This isn't therapy or counseling, nor is anything we talk about today going to involve or constitute medical advice. This is just a conversation. Another disclaimer is that suicide is a difficult topic to talk about. It's not one that we can discuss vaguely or indirectly if we hope to make a difference. So for our listeners out there, we are going to have a frank conversation today. If by any chance you have lived experience or you are triggered, if anything we discuss is upsetting or distressing to you, please reach out for help. Reach out to those who care for you and love you and reach out to those who you love. If you're a CBP employee or family member and you need help, you can always contact a peer support member, chaplain, or veteran support member. Or you can reach out to our employee assistance program. If you are not a CBP employee, you can always call 1-800-273-8255, which is the National Suicide Lifeline. This month, our Suicide Prevention Podcast is focused on safety. Today, we have with us Dave Cacciati from OSH. How's it going, Dave? Good, Ken. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, as you said, I'm uh, Dave Cacciati. I'm with the Occupational Safety and Health Division for Human Resources Management. Um, by way of and quick intro, I'm retired military, uh, safety uh, for about eight years and 15 years as a cop. I also have degrees in safety and a master's degree in leadership. So I'm really looking forward to uh, to our discussion today. So thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate your willingness to be uh, on with us today. Where were you a cop? You said 14 years, was it? Yeah, 15 years, uh, Air Force cop. So I, I was pretty much all over the world. Yeah. My guess is our listeners are wondering, what in the world does safety have to do with suicide? So you and I had a discussion early on, and I was very grateful that we had a similar mindset. We sort of saw the problem from the same angle, even though we have different specialties, there's an alignment there. So what in the world does safety have to do with suicide? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And I'm glad you asked. And and I want to delve into that a little bit, but I think it might help our listeners to kind of understand where we're at with um, the experiences that CBP is having with injuries in general and and the costs that injuries, toll, you know, how they take a toll cost-wise within CBP as well. So OSHA just, uh, OSHA was the Occupational Safety and Health Administration part of the Department of Labor, which most of the safety guidelines and regulations fall under. They just printed their FY21 stats for CBP and our number of injuries. And I just want to share with you a fairly staggering number of uh, when we talk about injuries. So uh, in FY21, CBP experienced 9,882 injuries in the workplace. Uh, of those 9,000 plus injuries, 6,869 of those cases were serious enough where an employee actually lost time at work. Um, so when we're talking about 
injuries and, and the significance of those injuries, you know, that results in a lot of manpower loss days where people are out of work because they've been injured. Um, but we also look at the amount of costs that's involved, and that's usually out of the workers' compensation division. Um, but chargeback costs, which is a combination of compensation for the employee and then medical payments. Mm-hmm. Um, in FY20, we don't have the FY21 data yet, but in FY20 alone, uh, CBP paid over $93 million in chargeback costs. So when we're talking about injuries, we've had a significant number of them, a significant number of people who were injured enough that they actually lost time at work. And then over $93 million that CBP had paid to, um, for those employees due to those injuries that they experienced at work. Wow. So, so would you mind if we unpacked those data for a moment? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's just start with the cost. Let's get that out of the way. When you say about $93 million plus in chargeback, is that how much it costs to do medical treatment or heal those employees? Is it more than that? Help us understand it. Sure. So I, I'm not a workers' comp expert, but um, essentially what happens is there's a the, when an employee is, is injured at work, they still continue to pick up some of their compensation. So their salaries are picked up. And then there's medical payments associated with the uh, injury that they experienced at work. That combination cost is, is part of the chargeback cost. That's a direct cost to CBP. Um, we haven't gotten into the point yet where we're where we have enough data to determine what the indirect costs are. So when we talk about indirect costs, if an employee is injured at work and they lose some time, maybe another employee has to pick up uh, an extra overtime shift or something. Uh, So that would be an indirect cost. Or maybe there was some damage to government property, like uh, vehicle damage or, you know, know, some equipment damage, that would be an indirect cost. Or if an employee is hurt significantly enough and they're no longer uh, able to perform their duties and maybe are discharged medically, you know, there's recruitment costs and training costs. And, you know, there's a number of factors that can be weighed in. We haven't really wrapped our arms around those costs yet, but those direct costs, we, we do know what those are and those exceed $93 million. That's pretty staggering as far as a number goes. Do you suspect just within your specialty that the indirect costs would be higher than the direct costs? In other words, is it the tip of the iceberg where there's so much more that we haven't wrapped our arms around and it's likely to be more expensive or the opposite? You know, it's a great question. I think in in the OSHA community, when you talk about in uh, civilian uh, companies or, or companies for profit, they can figure out the cost, the indirect costs a little bit easier than we can. Um, So we don't really have a great idea, but we think uh, based on certain studies that you'd have to add another 10 to 15% uh, related to indirect costs, since most of the big payment issues are are medical costs. I see. Okay. So that's the financial side. Let's talk about the workforce side. You said 9,882 injuries of which... 6,869 caused serious enough injury that the employee lost time at work. Correct. Give us an example of the garden variety injury we're talking about. Are we talking about, uh, I got a paper cut and uh, it bled too much, so I had to go to get some first aid? Are we talking about an accidental discharge of a firearm? What's what's the, the range sure. here? Yeah, so I'll talk generally about the um, the typical injury within CBP, right, is is somebody's out 
performing their duties. We'll, we'll talk about maybe a border patrol agent out on the southern border doing patrolling work. Uh, the agent is slips, falls, is injured, hurts their knee. Uh, or injures their back. The employee may go out of work for a couple of days. Um, that injury is reported, and then you know the lost time is recorded, and then a CA one is filed, which is a, a workers' compensation form, and that's when the uh, the chargeback costs uh, start to to kick in, and, and CBP has to pay out you know those type of costs. So there's um, you know generally that's a typical injury within CBP. Um, some are more dramatic. Some are, are significantly less dramatic. I see. Do you have, by any chance, an average number of days in these injuries that people are out of work? I don't. That, that data hasn't kicked in just quite yet. So uh, we have our own reporting system, which is the uh, Safety Incident Reporting Tool, or CERT, which uh, came online in late 2020. Um, so if anybody's ever injured at work, please make sure you file a, uh, a CERT report for us. That would be great. Um, but no, we don't have a, a good idea yet on average number of injury days lost due to injuries. We're, we're in the process of working with some of our other trusted partners to try to develop some of that, that data right now. Okay. But, but we're getting there. Okay. And then when we think of a number like 93 million in one year, 9,882 injuries in one year, how does that compare with the rest of the federal government? How does that compare with the private sector, maybe a similar in institution or organization? Let's say, I don't know, NYPD has about 45,000 employees. We have about 62,000 plus. Sure. So all the federal agencies are compared stat-wise within the, the metrics that I just told you. And they have what's called a total case rate, which, you know, a, a bit of safety nerd stuff is <laughs> basically the number of injuries divided by the number of employees. That gives you a better scope of where you, you know, where you sit in the pecking order, if you will, uh, on your, um, how well you're doing in the safety world. So CBP right now as of FY21 is at 50, our case rate exceeds 15. We are the highest in, in federal government as far as the most injuries on the total case rate. There's a couple of other like smaller agencies that, that have some uh, other significant numbers, but nobody compares with us right now. So we're, we're not doing all that well. So I love being number one. I like being part of organizations that are number one. Dave, yeah, maybe not this one. Maybe not this one. So right. maybe reassure the, the listeners and reassure us a little bit. So who's number two? How close are they? And if you don't want to mention the agency, that's okay. But how close are they? Are they at 14 or are they at two? No, they're they're at just under 10. So okay. it, I think it's like 9.6 or 9.8 uh, from okay. what my recollection is looking okay. at the stats. Would you say most of the, the agencies that have a, a safety issue that's that's pretty appreciable are in the seven eight nine range, or or is are we really the front runners with with maybe that that number two position as well? Yeah, we're we're significantly high. Um, yeah, it's it, TSA used to have a pretty bad rate, but they were able to bring it down. Um, significantly, um, they had a number of back injuries that they were recording when they when they first started out. Mm -hmm. um, but they've, those case rates have dropped. So when we look at other law enforcement organizations across the spectrum, and then our partners in DOD, um, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're significantly higher than they are. Okay, I think we could probably spend an entire podcast talking about the barriers to safety, 
the limitations of current processes and resources, the need for other resources, I, I think that's probably not going to take us in the direction of how safety pertains to suicide. But before we get to the nexus between suicide and safety, isn't there some sort of safety management system that you guys have been working on that is up and coming, almost here, something that gives us some hope about the injury rates? Yeah, sure. No, thank you for asking. Um, so safety management system, it it's often sounds like a new computer system that we're looking to employ, but um, basically safety management system is something that was developed in the FAA community for flight safety. And it, it, it was a more holistic look at how they could reduce the rates of uh, mishaps in the air uh, through a process called risk management, taking a look at a risk and determining if a risk was too high, maybe you don't want to do that or implement some type of risk management controls to bring the, uh, the, the potential risk of something going wrong to bring that down. So CBP is looked at, uh, is currently looking at adopting a new safety management system. Um, we're in the process of trying to put something like that um, into motion. Um, and it, it just hasn't got to that point yet where we mm -hmm. can actually deploy it. Um, but, but we're in the process of, of looking at it much, much closer. That's great. That's great in terms of looking ahead, how we can improve. You mentioned when we talked earlier, you mentioned a study out of Boston that I think shed some light on how suicide and suicide prevention might connect to safety. Would you mind sharing that with the listeners? Sure. No, I don't mind at all. No, thank you. And that's, you know, as you recall, that was one of the, the, the things that brought you and I together. Uh, so Boston University just recently published a study in the American Journal of Industrial Medicine. Uh, and what they found is that serious injuries uh, in the workplace that led to at least one week off at work almost tripled the combined risk of suicide uh, and overdose, uh, overdose deaths among women, and then increase the risk uh, of suicide by 50% among men, um, which was a really significant study. Um, there's always been some speculation in the safety community that we can, uh, that there is some type of nexus between injuries at work and then later uh, where an employee may commit suicide. And, and there's a number of factors that may include that. And I think you and I started touching about, uh, mm -hmm. touching on those just recently. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if a, if an employee is injured at work and they're sitting at home, you know, they, they have a lot more idle time on their hands. They, they, there's a decrease in, in, in wages that they may see. Mm -hmm. They may lose that connectivity with the, the office space or, or, you know, people that they're, uh, working around that they associate with day in and day out. You know, having those type of uh, injuries sideline an employee for more than a week, um, you know, and they may be treated with uh, pain medications. You know, it there was a, a decided increase in this Boston University study uh, between people who were overdosing and then, you know, committed suicide. Hmm. And there's no doubt that the overdosing itself accelerates the likelihood and the pace of a suicidal episode, obviously in a, in a bad way, leading to sort of increasing the likelihood of a suicide happening. But there's something else that I think is interesting that you mentioned, which is if people are off of work for a week or maybe even longer, I guess in the study, it was, it was a week that, that really brought out that relationship with suicide and, and injury. They're losing connectedness with 
their workforce, with their peers, with their colleagues. They may have decreased pay. Something that jumps out to me is sense of identity, meaning in life. There are lots of challenges that CBP employees encounter, and particularly those who are more operational, whether they're on the northern border, southwest border, whether they're border patrol, AMO, OFO, trade, you, you name it. There are challenges. And when people have a very positive sense of their meaning in life, their purpose, when they are sort of tolerating challenges and overcoming challenges in the name of this higher cause. And, and I'm not talking about a religious cause. Sure. What I mean is one's own purpose in life. Am I here to be a, a sort of a defender of our country? Am I here to be the, the face of the law? Whatever that is, that meaning. Am I here to be a great father? Am I here to be the, the best at what I do, the best tracker in the border patrol? Who knows what their meaning is? But it strikes me that if you're sitting home for a week or more, you're not getting to do that thing that motivates you. You're not getting to do that activity, that vocation, that calling that makes you feel good about yourself. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, I think OSHA recognizes that as well because there's a there seems to be a lot of correlation between the conditions around people who are injured at work and then commit suicide. You know, work they typically be they they typically are. Um, similar working age. Um, they have job stressors that, that correlate towards, you know, uh, injury at work and then late, maybe later suicide and mm -hmm. balancing family demands and environmental conditions. You know, all of these are risk factors that seem to parallel with um, people who commit suicide and people who are injured at work. So I think that there's a uh, good relationship, if you will, that's probably a bad mm -hmm. word, but a relationship that, that, that we're looking at, that we, we have the same target audience for trying to reduce injuries. You know, we're, we're looking at the same pool of people to try to reduce that. And I think, I think OSHA, uh, again, I think they recognize that through um, a number of studies. Another recent one that they did is that within the construction industry, that they, they saw that there, there was a higher rate of suicide uh, almost four times higher than the general population, um, and and they actually had a suicide stand down in in Kansas City and St. Louis in the construction industry hmm. because they saw that when people were injured at work that their suicide rates were were increasing. So I think the nexus between safety and suicide is becoming such that it, it's it's you know being recognized within industry professionals in the safety community. To realize that you know you're working towards the same goals that we are, and, and you know pooling our resources makes makes good sense. You know if we can target the right people and and reduce their um, willingness to take risks at work, you know that may reduce injuries. Well, that may also keep them at work longer, make them more productive, and all the good things that we want for employees. But it may also lead to less severe injuries um, and people not being at work and then increasing the risk that, that they may actually commit suicide later. So I appreciate you saying that. What I hear you saying is that the risk factors for suicide happen to be some of the same characteristics we notice among those who have injuries. And so whether the injury somehow activates that suicide risk, whether it magnifies it, exacerbates, it makes it worse. I don't think we have research that is that granular to show 
the relationship, but you point out that there is a relationship. Action that we can take based upon that is if we can then improve our safety as an organization, then we're sort of doing less to either activate that system or at the very least, we're reducing problems among that same group of employees. Yeah, I I think that that's completely valid. Um, You know, we're between what you do on your side of the house and what we do on our side of the house, you know, really dovetail nicely together um, in, in providing a, a safe and healthful workplace for the employees. And, and ultimately, that's what we're, <clears throat> as supervisors and as an agency, we're responsible for. So if we can provide that safe and healthful workplace, um, it, it helps everybody. You know, the employees are happier, sure. they're more productive, they're at work longer. You know, we reduce our costs. We reduce, you know, all those indirect costs that Mm -hmm. we talked about earlier. So I think that there's a a number of value-added propositions between suicide prevention and and injury prevention. The two go very, very well together. I think I only have one more question for you, Sure. Um, You're talking about injuries in a Boston study. You're talking about injuries that maybe are coming out of OSHA. When you're talking about people being out of work for a week, am I... Correct that this is not because of depression and mental health problems. These are physical injuries. In other words, this is not just, oh, when we're depressed, we don't function well or we have to take off of work because we're not feeling motivated. You're talking about physical injuries that we most people would typically not associate with suicide. Am I right? Yeah, I think that's what the Boston study actually provided. Uh, it provides us a bit of a roadmap because the uh, physical injuries may lead to those mental uh, problems that that might um, push somebody who may already have some suicidal thoughts anyways mm-hmm. but if they're injured at work and now they've lost that sense of identity um, you know I there's I'm sure that there is some nexus there um, okay. I, I mean you're the expert on that one so I'm going to defer to you on that one well, well I, I think the, the if I'm understanding you right the point is that some of the factors that drive up suicide risk have nothing to do with mental health. They have nothing to do with, let's say, stress. It has to do with being injured and what the secondary and tertiary order effects are of sitting home for three weeks. Right. Yeah. I think that that's probably pretty valid. Um, And I think there's going to be some follow-on studies from the Boston University study. I know you and I have talked when after this particular study, you know, is there a nexus that, that we can drive this home? Is, is CBP prone to this? Well, you know, we looked at all the suicide cases that, that CBP reported uh, that we have on record, then went back and looked at our uh, system of record to see if our employees had been injured at work. Um, and I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but roughly one third of the employees that committed suicide do show that they have some record of being injured at work. Um, so, you know, as we start to unpack those numbers and look into them a little bit deeper over the coming months, we may find that there's uh, another indicator that we can look at and, and add another tool to our toolbox to try to help reduce suicide and, you know, in the same vein, try to reduce injuries at work. So, you know, we can, we can look at this and maybe we find some, some other areas to uh, to pursue to help reduce suicides. Thanks for that, Dave. Look forward to drilling down on some of those data with you a little more deeply and really appreciate you coming on today and talking about that connection between safety and suicide prevention 
And also, I'm looking forward to that safety management system and, and seeing how that can help our workforce. So thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. This is part of our ongoing podcast series for suicide prevention and awareness. If you see someone struggling, say something. Asking them about suicidal thoughts may feel awkward, but you can help reduce suicide risk at home and in the workplace by tolerating that awkwardness. Simply ask, how can I help? And then just listen to the person. Make sure you ask them if they're thinking of ending their life. It really does make a difference. Thank you again to our guests. I really appreciate you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'll speak to you again on our next episode.